Indeed, it's a very special Father's Day, and we are excited and happy to hear about the Word of God this morning from my partner in the Gospel and Pastor Emeritus of Nova Community Church, John Sanders. Once again, I can hardly wait to hear what I have to say. If you would allow me a personal word or two before I begin, I've greatly missed standing here on uh, this spot of a Sunday. I haven't missed preparing to preach. It was hard work, that preparation, but I have missed the actual delivery of sermons. I've realized again and again in the last 14 months since I retired how very privileged I was to be preacher in this congregation I never took that task and that responsibility lightly. Uh, Think about it. Where else in all the world, in what other vocation, does one have the privilege of having people listen to, well, most of the people are listening, to, (laughs) to what you have to say for half an hour or so? And that sense of privilege was always compounded for me by the extraordinary responsiveness that you showed to the Word of God, your eagerness to hear it, your willingness to receive it, not merely as my words, but as the Word of God, possibly for you on a particular day. Uh, That mystical meeting of the Holy Spirit with the hearts and minds of Christ's followers was my privilege to play a small part in for over 42 years. So I'm glad to be here in this spot. Well, actually, it wasn't that spot exactly. It's more like, more like about that. I'm privileged to be here again in, in this spot because we have an opportunity to, to participate again in that mystical meeting between the Holy Spirit as he applies the word of God to our lives. We have the opportunity to participate in the best Father's Day sermon you've ever heard. Uh, Not because I'm preaching it or because you'll find it interesting or biblical or entertaining, but because in it you might hear the word of God and respond by the power of the Spirit, like that good ground in the parable that Jesus told, the good ground on which the seed of God's word fell and produced an abundant crop pleasing to the owner. So I ask you, will you be that good ground one more time with me? Uh, Will you listen? Will you obey? Uh, God's word for us today is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, starting at verse 26, Matthew 6, 26. And I'll read a paragraph or two there and then go to Matthew 7, starting at verse 7. So first, Matthew 6, 26. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? 
Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And then in verse 7 of chapter 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? May God bless this, his word, to our understanding and our obedience. Preaching on Father's Day has its unique challenges. For one thing, it's been pretty much taken over by Hallmark and others who are sentimental for mercantile reasons, if you know what I mean. It's become another occasion for card sending and gift giving. The day is awash in sentiment. And for another, many of us fathers are uncomfortable with the attention that we receive On Father's Day, we know that we don't measure up to perfection. We know, despite what that T-shirt or coffee mug might say, that we are far from the world's best dad. Those T-shirts and coffee mugs are, after all, made by the thousands and given out like participation trophies at a T-ball team meeting. They're unlike this name tag not mass-produced, as this one was, handmade for me by Audrey. It is, no doubt, the absolute truth, number one (laughs) grandpa. But if dads were ranked on Amazon, like Amazon purchases, none of us would be number one, and we know it. And anything the preacher says on Father's Day tends to make us feel guilty or uneasy, at least, not perfect, not even close to number one. And I know that Father's Day can be a tough day for some children. You may be one of those children. Uh, Frankly, your dad is not worth celebrating. And the day dredges up bad memories of fathers who failed and tangled feelings about a dad who was absent or abusive verbally or physically or a dad who abandoned you. 
And a lot of people have a hard time getting on the bandwagon of celebrating fathers on Father's Day because of their father's treatment of them. Well, in spite of the challenges, I agreed to come off the bench, to come out of retirement, to preach at least one more time, hoping to lead you in letting God speak to us through his word about fathering and parenthood. God the Father models parenthood. 1 John 3, 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. He calls us his sons and daughters, and he teaches us how to parent. Uh, Notice what Jesus says about God the Father in this text. It's worth noting at the outset that Jesus calls God Father. And in the Lord's Prayer, he encourages us to call God Father. That is his most frequent name for God here in the Sermon on the Mount, Father. It was not the usual manner of addressing God or of describing God, though sometimes Jews in Jesus' day thought of him and addressed him as Father. Jesus here tells us who follow him to rest securely in our Father's care, confident that he knows what we need. The Father in heaven knows our needs and he cares. Now the pagan gods were apathetic and not omniscient. In the words of that old joke, what's the difference between ignorance and apathy? They don't know and they don't care. The pagan gods didn't know and they didn't care. But our heavenly Father knows and cares. Jesus illustrated his teaching from what was close at hand. It's easy to imagine him sitting on that Galilean hillside beside the Sea of Galilee teaching and pointing to a flock of birds flying by and saying, see those birds? They don't plant crops. They don't harvest them. They don't store crops up. Yet they have enough to eat. God has so created the world that they are fed. Now think about it. You're worth more than they, worth more than the birds, aren't you? And imagine Jesus calling his audience's attention to the wild flowers that adorn the grassy slopes that lead down to that lake and saying, look how God has dressed the grass. Though it grows only for a short season before it's mown down and used as fuel in an oven. It's dressed in colorful, beautiful flowers. You are more substantial than those flowers and that grass, aren't you? If God takes care of the birds, and if God causes flowers to grow among the grass, certainly he can be trusted to give you what you need. You are more valuable than the birds. You are more important to your heavenly Father than the grass And the flowers of the field. So don't worry about what you're going to eat or what what you're going to wear. Pagans, those without the knowledge of the one and only true and living God, frantically run after those things. Don't be a pagan. Trust your Father God to take care of you. He knows you, He knows your need. That one who knows you best loves you most, and He will care for you.
I have fielded more than my share of questions for the newly retired in the last year or so. A few probing inquisitors have even asked, now that you're retired, if you could go back to work, what would you do differently? Now, I don't live with a lot of regrets. I guess that means I'm either perfect or completely oblivious. (laughs) Take your pick. But if I had it to do over again, I would worry less. I would rest more securely in my Heavenly Father's care, both personally and vocationally. I would practice contentment and satisfaction. I would rest more securely and more often in the Father's care for us. Trust God more fully for all the stuff of life. That's the message I preached. I counseled it frequently, but I have to say I practiced it only intermittently. I should have worried less and trusted more. In this text, Jesus is inviting us to relax in the God, the Father's loving embrace, to get rid of the anxiety, to stop worrying, to experience the security he provides. Now, I know you, most of you, and you're not dense, most of you. (laughs) You can see the application here already, I believe. We are to so parent our children so that our children have that same security and do not worry. Fathers and mothers are to do what God the Father models, what God the Father is the pattern for, knowing and caring for their children. Do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things, but your father knows that you need them. We are to be fathers and mothers who know and care. Last Wednesday evening's horrific murders in South Carolina demonstrate, among other things, a failure in fatherhood. It is alleged that the father of the murderer bought him his gun for a 21st birthday present. Now, totally apart from the issue of gun control, it raises the issue of parenting. This kid was strange and weird and severely socially inept. If you talk to those around him, family, teachers, and fellow students, and so-called Facebook friends, the father, no doubt, will say that he didn't know. But I'm saying he should have. Fathers should know their kids and care for them accordingly. A good father doesn't buy a gun for a disturbed child. And numerous lives are wasted and ruined because a father couldn't be bothered to know and care. Just as we are able to rest securely in our Heavenly Father's care, confident that he knows our needs, our children and grandchildren should learn through all the years of our parenting and grandparenting of them to trust us to know what they need 
and to provide it. You see, here we have an argument from the greater to the lesser. Our great God knows and cares for his children. We fallible, error-prone, imperfect, mistaken parents follow his pattern. And we learn how to know and care for our kids from their births to their adulthood. This text also speaks to how to receive from the Father what we need. In a word, ask. The Sermon on the Mount was preached to people who did not usually view God as kindly disposed to them. They feared God. They respected God. They stood in awe of God. Sometimes they even sank to their knees and prostrated themselves in abject terror when they met God or one of his representatives. I've called your attention before to how frequently the first word a messenger of the Lord to people speaks to people, fear not, don't be afraid. He's something to be afraid of. And pious Jews of Jesus' time would shrink from approaching God at all much less asking him for anything. But Jesus encouraged his followers to ask. And beyond that, to ask knowing that God cares. Do you see here how the Son came to reveal the Father? In Jesus, we see what God is like, who God is. Here's what God is like. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. He's ready to give. As it says elsewhere in Scripture, the only reason you don't have is because you don't ask. Look it up. It's there. I know I shouldn't make myself the hero of my own sermon illustrations, but just this once, (laughs) what are you going to do, fire me? Our granddaughter, Audrey, received Native American dolls for her birthday last week. And she let it be known, as she is wont to do, that her Indian dolls needed proper housing. Could grandpa, number one grandpa, (laughs) possibly sometime maybe make them a teepee? Could I? I'd love to. And I spent Tuesday afternoon making the best teepee she's ever seen, the best teepee you'll ever see. Uh, I glued together brown paper, and I I drew a big arc, and I cut it out, and I rolled it just right into a cone, and I glued and laced in sticks to hold it up. I cut out a doorway, and I delivered it. Now, why did I do that? Because Audrey needs to learn that her grandfather and her father are like our Father in heaven, to whom all we have to do is ask. All she has to do is ask Grandpa, because godlike as I am, <laughs> I love to give to her. Are you tracking with me? Ask your heavenly Father for what you need, Jesus says, knowing that he will answer. It's the asker who receives, the seeker who finds, 
the knocker who has the door opened to him or her. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now here the argument is from the lesser to the greater. Earthly parents know how to give good gifts to their children. How much more does the greater, the Father in heaven, know how to give and is willing to give good gifts to those who ask? Now notice that Jesus doesn't hear mince words about the state of fallen humanity. He uses the word evil. He's talking about us because he knows that we tend to the dark side. We're prone to do wrong. We are selfish and immature and imperfect. We are by nature not good, but exactly the opposite. Only God is good. There is none righteous, no, not one. If evil parents know how to give, how much more does God? Do you ever wonder how God feels about you? Many people grow up with a warped view of God. Often it's one that they've gotten from their parents. Children first experience the Heavenly Father's love through the love of a mother and a father. The child who grows up always in trouble with his parents most often comes to view himself as in trouble with God. I got into my share of trouble as a child. My six brothers and I made our own entertainment, and boy, were we entertained. One hot summer day when I was about six or so, when my dad was away at some pastor's meeting, we went into contractor mode, and we dumped all the paint we could find in the garage into a big bucket, and we mixed it all up and we painted the garage door. It was a shade that to this day has never appeared on one of those sample chips that you uh, get at the paint store. A greenish, brownish color with overtones of purple and undertones of orange. Its name would be something like sick pig output. For good measure then, We took a bag of cement and we mixed it with water from the hose and gravel from the driveway and we laid a sidewalk right in front of the garage door. We were in contractor mode. Mom let us know quickly and definitively that we were in trouble. We lived in dread of the hour that Dad would return. I experienced that you're in big trouble feeling a good deal growing up. And when I came into late adolescence and to early adulthood, I found myself having to unlearn that feeling because I had transferred it into my understanding of God and his disposition toward me. And I have been 50 years learning and relearning that God loves me, and I don't have to earn his love by behaving. He is the kind heavenly father who gives good gifts to his children. See this table before us? That's what it's about. How God feels about us. The apostle Paul wrote to the Romans, 
God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, once in trouble, but no more. The apostle Peter wrote, once we were no people, but now we are the people of God. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. Jesus said, this is how God feels about you. He loves you and gives good gifts to those who ask. Well, what are those gifts? Uh, Dee and I were talking about parenting with Pastor and Mrs. Nakazawa when they stayed in our home a few weeks ago. And in the course of that conversation, Nakazawa-sensei said, it occurs to me that God is committed to the happiness of us, his children. And I thought that was a simple but profound statement. It occurs to me that God is committed to the happiness of us, his children. And then we talked about what that happiness is comprised of. The happiness that God the Father wants for us is everlasting. It doesn't come from possessions or experiences, but it comes from God's presence and his provision and his commitment to our maturing as his sons and daughters. Dads want their kids to be happy, don't they? I've never met a dad in his right mind who wanted anything else. I could have stopped the sentence earlier. I could have said I've never met a dad in his right mind. But I've never met a dad in his right mind who wanted anything else but the happiness of his kids. They may misunderstand what happiness is, or they might try to secure that happiness in erroneous ways, but Fathers want their children to be happy. The motivation of parents distilled down to its its essence is, I just want my kids to be happy. That's what Jesus is getting at when he said, even evil parents know how to give good gifts. A few weeks ago, as we were talking about this sermon opportunity, Pastor Dean showed me an L.A. Magazine article about a book named Project Fatherhood. It's about a group that was formed in the Jordan Downs housing project in South L.A. The author of the book is a woman named Georgia Leap. She's a sociology professor at UCLA. She's an expert on gangs. And she describes the group as tough guys, former gang members, and ex-cons in their 30s and 40s. Sort of like your small group. She said they're the walking wounded of Watts who did plenty of their own wounding in turn, literal and otherwise. And Leap wrote, everyone, whatever their color, their criminal past, their prison record, everyone expressed dreams and anxieties about the children they'd left behind. They let their hair down and talk about how to nurture and love and give guidance to the next generation. How God seeks to bring to us that happiness might hold clues to being a good father who seeks the everlasting happiness of his children. Here's what God the Father models for us parents. He's present. He's with us. I will never leave you or forsake you, he says. Fathers need to be there. They need to show up. There's an epidemic of fatherlessness in our nation 33% of children, some 25 million kids, live apart from their fathers. 57% of black kids, 
31% of Hispanic and 21% of white. They have absent fathers. In that study that Georgia Leap made, uh, she reported when they spoke, so many of these men would painfully wonder, how can I be a father when I never had one? Fathers are to be present. Providing. God gives us what we need to become the people he wants us to become. The symptoms of human fatherlessness are evident in our society. They are much higher incidences of poverty and substance abuse and incarceration and crime and physical and emotional disease and sexual activity and teen pregnancy. They are lower rates of education achievement, lower rates of practical adjustment to life as it really is. Providing. And then, thirdly, demonstrating by the action of the Holy Spirit in our lives that continual, constant commitment to the formation of our character. He gives himself, God does, to the achievement of our maturity. And we, fathers and mothers, are to give ourselves to our children and the achievement of their maturity. The family is meant to be a factory, a factory that turns out people who are godly and happy. And when the factory works as God intends, children come into a right relationship with themselves and with others and with God. A progression along three lines is evident in this triangular relationship of of child and parent and God. First, as a child, he or she sees God's love in the parent's love. The child experiences God's tender care and responds with a simple childlike trust. God and my parents love me. They know me. They care for me. And second, as an adolescent, somewhere between childhood and adulthood, the the child experiments in self-direction and experiences discipline, or he ought to experience discipline, from both God and his or her parents. I want to be in charge of me. I want to do what I want to do, and sometimes I chafe against godly and parental discipline as I move along that tortured path from immaturity to maturity, from dependence to independence. And third, as an adult, the the one-time child and the one-time adolescent, moving out of adolescence to, to experience adulthood, to experience life daily as a friend, both of God and of his or her parents, enjoying a mature, growing relationship with parents and the same with God. A relationship in which both want the same things for themselves and their world. A growing relationship. I am my parents' friend and want more and more to be a friend of God. Growing more like him. Taking delight in pleasing him. Committed with all I have and with all I am to his purposes in the world. And so this morning, 
let us celebrate in our eating and drinking around this table that God has made us his children and he's given us ample proof of his love in the death of his son Jesus on our behalf. And let us fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandfathers and any who have influence over children, let us give ourselves anew to being more like God in our lives with our kids. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, what a wonder it is that you choose to be our Father, that you make us your children. We come humbled by that fact of history and our experience that we are the children of God. We see again the extreme price, the high cost of your act of salvation. Jesus died so that we might live, so that we might be sons and daughters of God. We're moved to awe and to gratitude. And we thank you and will forevermore praise you. Amen.